Welcome to Bible Center Church, and thank you for joining us for this week's podcast. We pray the Lord speaks to you as you hear His Word today. Please turn with me in your Bible or your Bible app to the book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 4. I want to welcome you back, Bible Center family. Thank you so much for tuning in online and on TV. Uh, We like to say that we're a family expecting guests. And so if you're new to us, if this is your first time with us, uh, welcome. And we want to do all we can uh, to help you connect to Jesus and to one another, to what the Lord is doing here at Bible Center. Just to get, let you in on a little secret, when I listen to a sermon, I like to follow along with notes. It just helps me to stay on track. And so if you're like me, we want to make that available to you through our app. The Bible Center app has all of our notes. There's actually a lot more, many more quotes and references uh, in the notes than what I'll cover today. And so I want to encourage you, download the app, follow along if you like on the outline or on the notes, and uh, feel free to use it as a Bible study this week. 2,000 years ago, shortly after Jesus ascended into heaven, uh, gave us his spirit and birthed the church, about 2,000 years ago, we find that the main question on the Christian mind was simply this, how can the church hold together when Christians are so different from one another? How can the church hold together when Christians are so different from one another? There was much division among the first century Christians over things like what to eat and what not to eat, what to drink, what not to drink, what holidays to celebrate, and what holidays not to celebrate it. If you think about it, even though they believed in the risen Christ, they had very little else in common. The early church was filled with Jews and Gentiles, men and women, rich and poor, old and young. Africans and Europeans and Asians, and they had very little culture or worldview in common. So what was God's solution not to do? Well, here was his solution. His was not his solution. God's solution was not for them to be in different churches. His solution was not for them to be in different churches. In the New Testament, God didn't say for them or us to have a church for carnivores over here and vegetarians over there, for those who enjoy wine over here and for teetotalers over there, to have a church for the Europeans over here and for the Africans and Asians over there. No, there was a better way back then and there's still a better way today. That's actually what we're going to talk about today from the book of Ephesians chapter 4. But let's face it, our world is more divisive today than most of us have ever seen. Cancel culture runs rampant on both sides of the political aisle, and the world has lost its mind on social media. But my primary concern today isn't the world. My primary concern today is is, is believers. I'm burdened how division and disunity and hatred and unforgiveness has seeped into the lives of Christian churches, Christian homes, and Christian hearts. You know, if you think about it, our stats as Christians, they're really not all that much different than the stats of the world. In many instances, our social media feeds at times aren't much different than the social media feeds of the world. 
Unfortunately, our attitudes at times aren't much better than the attitudes of the world. And with all the accusation and contempt and division, I fear that Jesus has been lost along the way. Today, I want to invite you to a better way. I want to beg you. I I want to plead with you for the next few minutes to humble yourself and to hear from God's word. Now, even though I'm the preacher, I want you to know that I need this message just like you. I'm not above anything I'm going to say today. And so the Lord has used this message in my heart this past week. And, and so I'm praying that you open your heart and ask the Lord, if, is there something he would have you change? I promise today's message will be worth the price of your attention. What I'm talking about today can mean life or death for you. It can mean life or death for your friendships, for your marriage, for your relationships with your parents, your siblings, or your children. And even though I am so thankful for the unity that we're experiencing here at Bible Center, uh, perhaps in in my five years here, this is the most unified I have seen us around the mission and vision that God has given us. But I want to ask you to help me maintain it. Let's work to maintain what the Lord has given us. Here's a summary of the next few minutes. In the next few minutes, I'm going to give you one big idea and four questions for contemplation. One big idea and four questions for contemplation. The message moves quickly, and I think it's very easy to follow. So let's go ahead and jump right in. Here's the big idea. The big idea is this, the fight for unity is a fight worth having. The fight for unity is a fight worth having. Let's jump into Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3. God says, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, I love the word. This is significant. In English, make every effort is actually one word in the original, and it's from a word that means to make this a matter of urgency. Spare no effort. Go for it. Make it a priority. This is the word that Roman trainers used when they sent gladiators to fight into the Colosseum. There was a sense of crisis to the word. Do it now. Be swift. Go get them. And he says, make every effort to do something. To do what? To keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, this word keep is significant. Many times there's, it's translated maintain. But what God is telling us there is that there's something he has already given us. We don't have to create it. He's already given it to us. But all we simply need to do is maintain it. And of course, he's talking about the unity that comes through the Holy Spirit. When Jesus baptizes us by the Spirit into the body of Christ, we have all the unity we need to live the Christian life. But God calls us to maintain it, just like you might maintain your house or a car or a motorcycle or a boat. You see, the fight for unity is a fight worth having. We all feel the urge to fight, to contend for certain things at certain times. Some of us fight for political positions or theological positions or for our rights or our feelings or our opinions. And God didn't tell us that we shouldn't have feelings, opinions, or preferences, 
But he's just telling us that if we're going to fight for something, let's make sure that unity is at the top of the list, especially for Jesus' followers. Here's one of my favorite pictures of Sarah and me. We've been married this summer for 21 years. I love this picture. We just snapped it on our couch. And Sarah's my high school sweetheart. But I can tell you there was a time in our marriage where how, what we argued about shifted. What we argued about shifted. You say, Pastor, have you had arguments in your marriage? Absolutely. I've been an idiot more times than I care to admit. But there was a, something that happened at some point in our marriage where the arguing shifted. Instead, we were fighting for unity. Instead, we were looking for what we have in common and how can we strive to find common ground. And then we'll talk about our disagreements. When you love somebody, you fight for unity. Anytime someone comes in my office, maybe it's two friends who are at odds with one another, two family members at odds with one another, or a married couple whose marriage may be on the rocks. The very first thing I do after prayer, the very first thing we talk about is we'd find out whether or not both parties are willing to fight for unity. I always ask that question. Are you two willing to fight for unity? You see, if you're not willing to fight for unity, there's not much more we can do. But if you're willing to fight for unity, there is so much more that God can do. This is what Jesus prayed for in John 17, verse 11. Then right before he was crucified, he prayed, Holy Father, Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. My prayer is that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me, and I have loved them even and have loved them even as you have loved me. We see it again in Galatians, Galatians chapter 3, verse 26. The Apostle Paul writes, So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. You are all one in Christ Jesus if you belong to Christ. In other words, if you've put your faith in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Tim Keller, a longtime pastor in New York City, writes this, even though we have the life of the Trinity in us, we live in spiritual immaturity until we do the hard work of maintaining unity in the church. The fight for unity is a fight worth having. Now, here's what we're going to do in the remainder of our time together. I told you about those four questions for contemplation. I'm going to give you those four questions now. And I would ask you to think about your own heart, not the person sitting next to you or the person that you want to call on the phone and make sure they're listening. But instead, think about these questions for yourself, just like I'm thinking about them for myself. Number one, would my family and friends agree that the gospel is the highest priority of my life? Would my family and friends agree that the gospel is the highest priority of my life? We see this in Ephesians 4 and verse 1. Paul writes, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. 
Now, if you're taking notes, the word worthy, or you'll see it in our notes, the word worthy is from the Greek word axios, from where we get our English word axle. It doesn't refer to the axle of a car or the axle of a chariot in this instance, but to the axle of a scale, the bar that runs along the top of a scale to show balance. And so in verse 1, our life is pictured on the axios, on the scale. He says, live your life, walk worthy, live your life in such a way that you are worthy of the calling you have received. So on one side is our lives as Jesus followers, and on the other side is this calling that we have received. Now, it's a little bit hard to understand just looking at verse 1, but in context, if you go back, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, the calling we have received is very clear. That is the calling we have received in the gospel. And so what Paul is, is encouraging us to do, what we can ask ourselves is this, am I living a life that would be categorized by the gospel? Now, what is the gospel? Well, the gospel, the word gospel means good news. The word good news, this gospel would be shout from the rooftops. It was, a, it was an ancient way for people to declare that something great had happened. And in the Bible, the gospel is the good news that the living God, who demands perfection of all humankind, sent his son, Jesus Christ, into the world to live a sinless life to suffer and die on the cross as a substitute for our sins, absorbing the judgment we rightfully deserve, to rise again, to ascend back into heaven, and to grant forgiveness and righteousness and his spirit and eternal life at the moment anyone repents and believes. The good news is that Jesus has already paid for your sins. You don't have to pay for your sins by joining the church. You don't have to pay for your sins by doing community service. Jesus has already paid for your sins. He offers you salvation, and all you've got to do is receive it. More specifically, all you must do is receive him. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out. Commit your life to Christ right there where you sit, right there where you stand, wherever you're watching or listening to this message. Just tell Jesus, I give my life to you. I follow you as the Lord of my life. I want to be your disciple. You know, Christians, the gospel is for us as well. The gospel isn't just the finish line of the Christian life, but it's the starting line and the finish line and everything in between. The gospel is the track we run on, the air we breathe, the water we drink, the team we run with, and it's the gear we wear. The Bible's good news isn't just that Jesus saves, but it's also that Jesus transforms. And so I want to ask you a question, Christian. If you believe that Jesus can save you from hell, could you not also believe that Jesus can save you from your habits, from your hangups, from your hopelessness? We ask ourselves this question in terms of unity. Would my family and friends agree that the gospel is the highest priority of my life? More than sports, more than money, more than success, more than popularity or pleasure or power? more than America, 
more than security, more than guns or cars or technology? Am I all about the gospel? That's the first step to unity. Number two, can I admit I might be wrong about some of my convictions, preferences, and opinions? Can I admit that I might, I didn't say you were, but might be wrong about some of my convictions, preferences, and opinions? We see this in verse 2, Ephesians 4.2. Paul says, be completely humble and gentle. Be completely humble and gentle. Being completely humble and gentle begins with realizing that we are not God and that there might be some things we don't know that we don't know. Now, this can be a tough one for some of us, especially some of us West Virginians. This goes against the grain a little bit of the way some of us are made. But God is actually inviting us into a better place, a place of humility where we're willing to admit there might be some things that I don't know that I don't know. Unfortunately, the greatest cause of division in a family, in a friendship, on the job, or at church is a lack of humility. You see, as Christians, we're a very principled people, and that's a good thing, but if we're not careful, have you ever noticed how easy it is for pride to run shotgun with your convictions, preferences, and opinions? I love Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It's a verse that many of us who grew up in the church memorized when we were little. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not into your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him <coughs> and he shall direct your paths. But let's not forget about verse 7. Verse 7 goes on to say, Do not be wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and depart from evil. We could say that another way. Let us not ever think that we have it all figured out. Let us not ever think that we have it all figured out. The moment that we think we have it all figured out is the moment we are going to bring division into just about any group we're a part of. Let's get honest and transparent together for a few minutes. This idea of vulnerability. I'm going to be vulnerable. I'm going to try to be as, as authentic and honest as I can about some of the history of the Christian faith as possible. This is the history that many of our critics bring up, and part of it, they are absolutely right. There have been various groups of Christians throughout church history, even throughout American history, who have been wrong on some pretty big things from culture. There have been Christians who have used the Bible incorrectly and out of context to somehow justify segregation. There have been Christian groups to try to use the Bible to justify the atrocities of slavery or even to deny women the right to vote. I read about that this week. Some of the Bible arguments that people were trying to use to deny women the right to vote. There have been groups of Christians who tried to deny women pain relief for childbirth. Ironically, you can guess which gender most, most of those Christians were who tried to argue that. There have been Christians who've tried to use the Bible to prove that we shouldn't have pain relief in general, or that contraception is bad, or that somehow even that it's okay for them to support Adolf Hitler for some Bible reason. It is possible for people to use the Bible in an incorrect way. 
Now, we look at those things I just mentioned and we say, well, there's no way I would have been wrong about that in the past. But is it possible that there's anything that we believe in our preferences or opinions that really the Lord would not have us to believe? Is it possible we could be wrong about our beliefs on the timing of the rapture or the timing of the millennium or the age of the earth or the length of days in Genesis 1? Is it possible that we could be wrong about some of our isms and schisms, whether it be dispensationalism or reformed theology? Is it possible that we could be wrong about some aspect of women's roles in the church or sign gifts in the world today? Even on a personal level, this affects us personally. It's possible that there are some things that might be right or wrong for one person but they might not be right or wrong for another person. For instance, how we decide to educate our children, whether or not you personally get the vaccine, the beverages you drink or don't drink, the movies you watch or don't watch. I I promise you, the moment you begin and I begin to ask ourselves this question, our lives are gonna change. Unity is going to be so much more attainable when we realize we may not have it all figured out. Can I admit, I might be wrong about some of my convictions, preferences, and opinions. Watch what happens when that level of humility begins to permeate your family, your workplace, your friends, this church. Number three, Here's a good question for us to ask. Do I love others more than I love being right? Do I love others more than I love being right? The rest of verse two says this, be patient, bearing with one another in love. Be patient. The idea of be patient literally means to be long fuse. Don't have a short fuse. Give others space to grow. Allow some time to pass before you press send on that angry email or before you say what you think. This this idea of patience is calling us to be slow to hit the eject button on our relationships. Then he says, bear with one another in love. Literally, that means to hold ourselves back from one another, to put up with somebody's differences, even when their personalities, attitudes, and decisions rub you the wrong way. Have you ever noticed how every family has a cousin Eddie in their family? If you've ever watched National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, every family seems to have a cousin Eddie in their family. If you say, Matt, I don't think my family has a cousin Eddie in my family, well, then you probably are cousin Eddie, right? Every family has that guy. But One good way for us to ask ourselves this question, do I love others more than I love being right? Another way to ask it is this. When I argue, what means more to me? Winning the relationship or winning the argument? Winning the relationship or winning the argument? Am I more interested in winning a friend or winning a fight? Winning the friend or winning the fight. When I debate, do I see a person in front of me or do I just see a position in front of me? Am I more concerned with unity or uniformity? And unity and uniformity are not the same thing. We want to strive for unity. 
but we're not striving for uniformity. Let's have our different opinions. Let's have our different preferences. Let's discuss different interpretations of some of these peripheral issues. Let's have good discussion about it. But still, we can strive for unity. If you're at odds with somebody, whether it be a church issue, whether it be a family issue, you're at odds with someone at work, if there's somebody in your life that you're at odds with, that you are angry at or have been hurt by, as a Christian, you only have two choices. You only have two choices. According to the New Testament, one, you can address it, or two, you can overlook it. You can address it, or you can overlook it. There are times where we need to pull that first option out, and we need to address something. Jesus even said in the Sermon on the Mount, if you know that somebody is at odds with you, if you've hurt somebody accidentally or on purpose, it's your responsibility as a follower of Jesus to address it and go to them and say, hey, how have I hurt you? What did I do that maybe I'm not aware of or maybe you are aware of? It's your responsibility if you know that someone has hurt you for you to go to them and address it. But if you choose not to address it, there is a second way. And according to the Bible, the second way is to overlook it. Multiple times this phrase is used in Scripture, love covers a multitude of sins. And so it's totally okay for you to say, you know what, I'm not going to address this, I'm going to overlook it, I'm going to give grace, and I'm going to move forward in love. That doesn't mean you, you put it back in a list or you put it in the back of your mind to pull back out whenever you're mad again. It just means that you give it to the Lord and you let it go. Address it or overlook it. But I want to encourage you to pray this prayer. Ask yourself this question, do I love others? more than I love being right. The moment we can move into loving others more is the moment we move into unity. One last question, fourth and final question is this. Do I major on the majors and minor on the minors? Do I major on the majors and minor on the minors? It's been said that there's no doctrine a fundamentalist won't fight over, and no doctrine a liberal will fight over. Think about that with me again. There's no doctrine that a fundamentalist won't fight over, and no doctrine a liberal will fight over. Now, I realize those words can be used in a lot of different ways, but I think the message we can take away from that is that let's avoid the extremes. May the Lord help us to avoid both extremes. The Apostle Paul gives us some majors to major on here in verse 4, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. He says, There is one body, one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. This is not Paul's way of saying doctrine divides, but love unites. That's not what Paul's saying here. Actually, it's the exact opposite. Paul is saying that there are at least, and this is just an example list, it's not a comprehensive list, but there's at least seven things that must be agreed upon or confessed before we can have true unity. The first one here is that there's one body. This refers to the universal church, the body of Christ, made up of all believers throughout history. 
there really is no such thing as Jewish Christians or Chinese Christians or American Christians or Russian Christians. There's just Christians. God says there's one family. And then there's one spirit. There's not an African Holy Spirit and an American Holy Spirit. There's just one spirit. There's one hope. In context, he's pointing back to Ephesians chapter 1 and 2. It's the hope we have in Jesus and the hope we have of being a part of Jesus' family. There's one hope. There's one Lord. The word Lord was one of the favorite titles for Jesus among early Christians. In Ephesians alone, there are 20 references to Jesus as Lord. And so this is why we have it inscribed on our mantle out in our lobby where Jesus said, I am the way, John 14, 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's core to what it means to be a Christian. One faith. He's not talking here about having faith, but the idea of one faith refers to there is one body of Christian doctrine that we call the faith. Jude 3 tells us to earnestly contend for the faith. Then he says there's one baptism. This has nothing to do with methodology or the different preferences surrounding baptism. He's just saying that whatever method that your church has chosen to use in baptism to look for the spiritual significance of that baptism, of how it points to the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, how it points to the Spirit being poured out in your life. Ask yourself, do I major on the majors and minor on the minors? Now, at first, it might actually sound spiritual for us to say that all Bible doctrines are created equal. It might sound spiritual for us to say that all of them are equally important, but that's actually a difficult statement to justify biblically. The Bible teaches that some doctrines are actually more important and should be emphasized more than others, especially those doctrines that are required for saving faith, those that are closely connected to the gospel, and those we are forbidden to deny under the threat of condemnation. Now, there's a number of references in your notes I'll encourage you to check out, but think with me. I'll just pull out two of those references. Matthew 23, 23 through 26. In Matthew 23, Jesus said this, talking to the Pharisees, you have neglected the more important matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness. So in Jesus' own words, there were some things that were more important matters. 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, the Apostle Paul says, I received what I passed on to you is of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised the third day according to the Scriptures. If you want to study this more, again, there's a lot of references in your notes, but let me refer you to a book. This is a book our elders read together this past year. It really helped us in our thinking. It actually put words to a lot of things that we already believed. 
But Finding the Right Heels to Die On, The Case for Theological Triage by Gavin Ortland. It's a fairly short book, but it covers a lot of the hot-button issues in Christianity and gives us a framework on how we can maintain unity in the core issues of the faith and understand that there are brothers and sisters in Christ out in our community, and there's brothers and sisters in Christ even in our church who see some things differently but we can gather around the core doctrines of the faith. Do I major on the major and minor on the minors? You see, pursuing unity in the church does not mean that we stop caring about or even debating the minors. It just means that we show grace when we discuss them and we stop requiring everybody to agree with our preferences and opinions. If you look at Romans chapter 14 and chapter 15, in those two chapters, God actually compares the spiritually mature Christian with the spiritually immature Christian. The spiritually strong Christian with the spiritually weak Christian. And in those chapters, the spiritually mature Christian is the one that can give grace and freedom to the other Christian without requiring him or her to agree on every little thing. Now I wanna ask, have you ever met somebody who insisted that you had to agree with them on everything? You ever been around anybody like that? I'm talking about every preference, every opinion, every conviction, every persuasion. They insisted that you agree with them on everything. You ever been around anybody like that? Oh, I used to be that person. Early in our marriage, my wife will tell you, probably because of the religious system that we were brought up in and my own pride, oh, I used to be that person. And I don't want to be that person. And I don't want you to be that person. But one thing I've noticed is that when people will do that out in public with their friends and their coworkers, they're probably also having that same attitude towards their wife, towards their children, toward their closest friends, toward their coworkers when nobody's looking. And God invites us as believers to stay away from that. I put a bunch of notes, verses in your notes that actually where Paul tells us in the book of First and Second Timothy and Titus that people who do that are actually very dangerous people. I don't want that for you. I don't want that for me. The problem with making every error or heresy is that it renders union more difficult. Another problem with fighting over preferences and opinions is that it hurts our Christian witness. Some Christians have spoken so loudly about preferences and opinions that when they finally do speak of Jesus, there's nobody listening. So here's what I want to encourage you to do. I want to encourage you to ask yourself these four questions. Would my family and friends agree that the gospel is the highest priority of my life? Can I admit I might be wrong about some of my convictions, preferences, and opinions? Do I love others more than I love being right? Do I major on the majors and minor on the minors? You say, Matt, why is that so important? For this reason, the fight for unity is a fight worth having. 
For more information, visit us at BibleCenterChurch.com or check us out on social media. You can also join us in person for services on Thursday at 7 p.m. or Sundays at 9 and 11 a.m.